Okay, we've got another um, edition of the political mic. This week, I'm so excited to have the panel that I do have tonight. Um, the Rockstar panel for sure. And I'm gonna go ahead and start introducing um, the panelists right now. So with me tonight, I have um, Nate Honoré. Nate Honoré um, graduated from Oakland University, uh, my alma mater, with a Bachelor of Arts degree um, in law and political science. He's a law student at Quinnipiac University and he has a passion for human rights. So th Nate, thank you so much for being here tonight. Um, Cassandra Knopf. Cassandra Knopf is a rising 3L at Howard University School of Law, like myself. She's passionate about politics and justice from a young age, and she began engaging in the civil process by writing for the president to protest the Iraq invasion at age eight. Recently, this translated into a passion for human and civil rights law, and specifically environmental justice. Cassandra has interned with Representative Sharice uh, David, uh, Office of Capitol Hill currently works for an environmental nonprofit based in Maryland and has secured a fall position at the Environmental Protection Agency. She's excited to bring her energy to the legal profession. Sandra, thank you so much for being here tonight. So excited to have you on. Amethyst Jefferson Roberts. Amethyst Jefferson Roberts, born and raised in Compton, California, is a rising CEO at Howard University School of Law. Amethyst's passion for fighting against systemic racism has guided her to become a public defender to fight on the front line. Of, of indigent defense. Amethyst also plans to be a social engineer, advocating for equity as an elected member of the, Con of the Compton uh, School Board, the City Council, and continuing that agenda until she is representing California as a United States Senator. She lives her life by the African proverb, Utsuno, meaning I am because we, and because we are, therefore I am. Amethyst, it's such an honor to have you here tonight. Thank you for joining. Christopher Johnson. Christopher Johnson is a proud native of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is an alumnus of Oakland University as well. He had earned a bachelor's of arts degree in pre-law with a concentration in political science. Christopher currently serves as the district office chief of staff for Pennsylvania State Representative Joanna McClinton. Previously, he served as a Capitol Hill intern with the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation in Washington, D.C and intern with the 2016 Democratic National Convention Committee in Philadelphia. He is also a former field organizer for Hillary Clinton's 2015 presidential campaign. Chris, thanks so much for being here tonight. Your insight is gonna be, I know it's gonna be good. So thank you for being here. Thank you. Ariana Patton. Ariana Patton is a rising QL at the Thurgood Marshall School of Law. As a native of Ellenwood, Georgia, Ariana began her political journey her senior year of high school where she had the opportunity to intern for the late office of Congressman John Lewis. After interning for John Lewis, she remained in the political field by receiving her BA in political science from Spelman College and obtained internships with the Georgia Legislative Black Caucus, Planned Parenthood Public Policy Division, Coca-Cola, Toyota Government Affairs, and L'Oreal USA. Ariana currently has a political Instagram account, The Black Girl Political, which I encourage you to go ahead and follow, that educates her followers on the political process. Ariana hopes to one day become a member of Congress. And last but not least, Mr. Chiquesti McCall. Uh, Mr. Chiquesti McCall is a very distinguished guest of mine tonight, and I'm so happy that he's on the panel. He is a lifelong resident of Florence, South Carolina, and a graduate of Francis Marion University, class of 2015, where he majored in political science. While at Francis Marion, he was awarded the Jesse A. Cole Political Science Scholarship and the Dr. Neil B. Uh, Pickman Award in South Carolina politics and government. 
While at Francis Marion, he also served as the president of the Francis Marion College Democrats and chairman of the PD Young Democrats. He was later appointed by the South Carolina Democratic Party to the voter uh, protection call for the PD uh, region in 2014. After graduating from Francis Marion, Chiquez obtained his juris doctorate degree from Carolina Central University School of Law. And while in law school, he served as a staff editor for the NCCU Law Review and was chairman of the NCCU Law Democrats. Currently, Chiquez is the owner and managing attorney of the McCall Law Firm, located in Florence, South Carolina. And as of June 9th, 2020, he is currently the Democratic nominee for Florence City Council. So, Mr. McCall, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, without further ado, let's get right into it. So, recent polling has, uh, for instance, the Morning Council poll has Biden leading um, the incumbent president, President Donald Trump, 51% uh, to 43%. This seems to have been a trend that has increased um, since the uh, COVID-19 pandemic outbreak has worsened and the death toll has risen since um, February. So even within, when you look at the specific state polling in Pennsylvania, for instance, there's, I believe there's a 30, it's 39 Trump, 51 Biden. This is the, the widest gap, uh, the widest margin has ever been um, during this election cycle so far. Um, this pattern is seen in other, um, crucial swing states such as Ohio. I mean, Ohio, he's actually leading by one, uh, such as Wisconsin, Florida, um, even Texas, Trump is only leading by uh, 1%. Um, so I'm gonna go ahead and throw this question out to the panel. Do you think that this trend is likely to continue or do you think that we're just in a, a high watermark for Biden? Uh, a lot of folks have made the comparison uh, with the 1988 campaign when Dukakis in the summer was well ahead of George H.W. Bush and George H.W. Bush managed to overcome uh, the Democratic uh, challenger, Mike Dukakis, and defeat him. Um, I'm going to go ahead and start out with uh, Chris. Since, um, you know, your experience working in, uh, you know, recent campaigns in 2016, working on the Clinton campaign, and I know you were very active um, in, in, in on-the-ground politics, do you see similarities? Because I remember polling, even back then, that it had Hillary Clinton up. It wasn't by the same margin that we're seeing today, but should we uh, be more weary or, or cautious? Well, first, Mike, I want to say thank you for uh, allowing me to join this very distinguished panel. Um, and I'm so grateful for you to be able to um, open up this platform and creating this dialogue as we're facing the most important election um, in our lifetimes for many of us. And so I just want to thank you for, uh, in this critical time, creating critical discussions um, amongst us all together. Um, but I will say this, um, today, if you are on the Joe Biden campaign, if you are Joe Biden, um, you're, you're in good shape. I think that you are feeling really good about um, the state of the race at the moment. Um, I think that America has shown itself to be, um, at least at the moment, um, wanting to fire who's currently occupying the office um, for a number of factors. One, um, we have a pandemic that has um, swept across this country and across the globe. Um, but particularly here in um, states all across the country, but particularly in battleground states like you named in Pennsylvania, uh, Texas, Georgia, um, the pandemic has been hitting citizens hard and folks are looking to, to the White House for leadership and it hasn't been there. And as a result, um, lives are being lost. Uh, we see an economy that is battered and broken. And I think that people are saying that we've got to turn the page in 2021. Um, and so I think at the moment, Biden's in good shape. He's reached about 51% 
Um, that's like the highest or that's the ceiling that we've seen so far, um, which is actually a lot, um, a few percentages higher than the ceiling that Hillary Clinton ever reached in 2016. So um, there are some really good indicators that if the election were, be, were to be held next Tuesday, Joe Biden will win. But there is a chance that um, polls may, may shrink um, they may tighten as we head into the final months of this campaign, the final 90 days or so, um, when Biden has to name a running mate who may give him a boost or may uh, cause voters to have questions. Um, but I think that also if if Trump can find a, find a way to sharpen his message on the economy and start to become a little bit more disciplined, which is a problem he's had for most of his you know career or professional life, then he might have a, a fighting chance. But today... I think that Biden's in, in good shape. Yeah, and I like um, what you mentioned in terms of the messaging as well, because the messaging, the Democrats this year actually have more of a message, it seems, than they did in 2016. Hillary Clinton's message, I mentioned this on the uh, this broadcast about two weeks ago, um, was more so, you know, she's ready on day one. And so being the candidate for the party that was already holding the White House, she was the incumbent. And so it didn't, it wasn't, strong or effective for the incumbent to come out with a message like that in a year where it seemed like it was a year for change. Um, Cassandra, I want to get your thoughts on, because I know you were also, you're also engaged in the political process, especially in Capitol Hill and everything. Um, do you think that this is a high water mark? Or do you think that this is a, a change year again, due to the controversy um, of, you know, police brutality? Um, we've also got the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic raging and rather than getting things getting better, it seems as if things are getting worse because the Trump campaign, in addition to what, as Chris pointed out, having no message, it seems, to really frame Biden as you know a reason not to vote for him. It seems as if they're contradicting the CDC, they're contradicting the medical community, and they're encouraging people not to wear masks. There, there seems to be more of a focus to get people in these packed uh, arenas um, to continue life as usual, have these Trump rallies. And do you think that this would come back to haunt them in November? Um, first of all, thanks for having me on this panel. Um, I enjoy talking about these things a lot. Um, so I think there's a long answer and a short answer. I think the short answer is yes, it's going to bite them. Yes, I think especially in like local and state uh, elections. It's definitely going to affect the way that people view the Republican Party. Um, they really threw their hat in with Trump early on, and they really stuck to it even through impeachment. Uh, Mitt Romney was the only member of the Senate who was a Republican who voted for impeachment, uh, which he knew was not going to do anything, but at least he made sure to project like, you know, this is not something that I endorse. Um, but generally, the Republican Party has... Uh, consistently and repeatedly failed to do any of their um, job to check the president. My concern, especially going back to the, um, the polling and this idea that we're pulling ahead, I, I think that that's a good thing, it's a good indicator, but the fact of the matter is we haven't done any real legislation, we haven't done any real investigation, we haven't done anything to pay attention to the election interference that happened to us in 2016. And I think that was very purposeful because the uh, the people in charge of that would have been the Senate. The Senate being Republican-led, they have an actual vested interest in not um, protecting us from uh, voter interference. And then um, we know that there have been issues with voter accessibility and that there are barriers that are being erected willfully or, you know, 
maybe not, but we, we see between the lines. So I, I want to be optimistic about this November election. I think that the general, I, the consensus of the population generally is that Trump has failed miserably as his COVID response. Um, but will that be reflected in the election results? I can't with confidence say that we're going to see something that's truly reflective of what we as citizens want to see. And that concerns me a lot. Right. And, and, and I like the fact that you had mentioned the undertone behind all of the, um, you know, election news is the fact that there was still uh, foreign interference in 2016. And there was nothing to put that foreign interference in check to prevent that from happening again. And we're seeing it again in this election cycle. And there was a news, you know, multiple news outlets reported that Mark Meadows seemed to encourage uh, foreign interference in this election process. Um, I'm interested in getting your thoughts, Amethyst, on do you whether you think we're headed to another 2016 scenario where things seem well for the Democrats, polling is you know, where it should be, but we're not paying much attention to foreign interference and that comes to haunt the Democratic Party or you know, the outcome of the election. Uh, just like everybody else, thank you for having me here today. I apologize, my nephew's in the background living his best self life. Um, but I agree with both Chris and Cassandra. I think that we definitely are going to hopefully not be surprised at the end of November and have a new president. But also I am concerned with the fact that we're not we're not going to be protected as voters as far as foreign interference. Because I mean, honestly, for just normal people, that's a big black hole that we don't even really know much about. And so I'm just hoping that we can all go out and vote and make sure that we get a new president, but am I hopeful? Because people, I watch a lot of videos and people be out here still supporting him after the death tolls here, after all of the racist comments he's made. And people just do not care. They're just like Trump crazy. So I, I hope and I pray and I will be on these battlegrounds fighting for a new president, but uh, you know, we won't know until it's over. And Ariana, I'm interested in getting your thoughts too. I know both of us, we've had the opportunity to work um, under the CBCF um, in 2018. And that year was interesting because at the end of the year, we saw a midterm sweep for the Democrats. So we saw a lot of people actually engage in the political process. And it was actually a very high, much of a higher watermark. And when you compare mid, that midterm election with other midterm elections, usually midterm turnout is very poor, especially, especially among... Um, you know, African-American demographics and other minority groups. Do you think that this election, um, the factor of foreign interference would come into play and that people won't really be as engaged when you also take into consideration COVID-19 concerns and other things that people have in terms of going out to cast a ballot, deadlines for mail-in ballot? Uh, yeah, I think... Um... I, well, I'm very hopeful. <laughs> I'm hopeful that, uh, like everyone else, I'm very hopeful that uh, we are not surprised that we um, will have a new president. Um, I'm I'm really not sure about foreign interference right now. Um, the, I think the thing that I'm most worried about is voter the voter suppression tactics, and I think in Georgia it's it's heavy um, because you know, uh, especially within the Black communities. Um, I know within my personal community, Illinois, Georgia. <laughs> Big shout out to them. Um, that there was like a lot of polling issues, um, you know, where there were only, you know, three or four like actual, um, 
I don't know, forgot the names of it, but um, where you were actually able to vote and, um, you know, people were in, waiting in long lines, people had to go to work, you know, and I think that the pandemic has a big thing, oh, polling stations, thank you. Um, um, and people had to go to work. And so I think that took a major toll on voting. Um, but as you see, there was still um, a good turnout. People were still actually able to go out and vote. Um, I think that right now is the best time um, to, well, I, I guess everyone now is more so focused on um, politics because there's nothing else to distract us. We see it, it's right in our face. Um, there's nothing to, you know, we don't have, um, you know, uh, any like sports uh, distractions. We don't have like major TV shows. You know, we don't have anything to truly, truly distract us. So we're more so focused on, you know, what's going on in the world. And, and the pandemic is playing a big role, you know, seeing how Trump is handling the fact that we've only received um, a $1,200 you know, check how of a lot of the, you know, uh, major businesses are receiving, you know, kind of, I guess, payouts and how, um, you know, there's like things that's going on in the economy and how pe our people are struggling. They actually just uh, stopped, uh, well, they cut the $600 unemployment payments. Um, and now they're thinking, and I know we're going to talk about this later on, but now they're thinking about um, um, cutting it to $200. You know, who can live off of $200 a month? Uh, or two dollars, two hundred dollars a week. I'm sorry. Um, so I, I think people are really focusing in on this and seeing. Okay, you know, Trump said that he was going to do this. He said he was going to stimulate the economy. What's going on right now? Why are people, um, why are people dying at fast rates uh, with COVID-19 when he had the plan to actually, you know, fix this problem or or not even fix it, but to, I guess, you know, um, uh, to. to uh, I guess to like bring it to a normal rate, um, you know, in comparison to other countries. So uh, hopefully, oh, sorry. Yeah, hopefully uh, we have, you know, hopefully we are able to get Biden in. I hope people, you know, really take the ballot seriously um, and not run anyone in on the uh, on the ballot. So. Yeah, yeah, and and while you're thinking, I was thinking, I was thinking about, um, you know, members of the media mentioning that. The GOP hopes to have an October surprise this year in the form of a um, some kind of vaccine for um, COVID nineteen relief to ensure that um, you know Trump looks like he's on top of this crisis again to quell fears to quell insecurities about his leadership um, and so uh, Mr McCall I'm interested in your take on whether or not you think uh, you know the pandemic. Uh, you know, people's fears and contacting this virus would come into play? Um, or would the fact that people have been secluded so, for such a pe long period of time, um, like Ariana pointed out, would that result in people paying even more attention to not just the presidential election, but also elections down ballot, Senate elections, congressional elections, elections like the one you're running in uh, for city council in Florence, South Carolina? Yeah, definitely. And again, I'm sorry for the, the technical difficulties. Can you all hear me still? Yeah, we can right. yeah, again, and uh, thanks for having me as well, Mr. Taylor. Um, but again, I honestly believe that um, this pandemic is something that we all know that we'll probably never witness again in our lifetimes. Um, and I can attest to, on a local level when I'm running, when I was running, I'm um, at the primary is uh, understanding that this pandemic uh, changed the game. Uh, local elections oftentimes doesn't get the same uh, type of of attention like national national elections uh, do. Um, but I think what helped spark the momentum 
for a lot of uh, local elections or and a lot of elections overall was the uh, George Floyd incident. Um, so um, looking back at where we're at now, we're maybe like 96 days away or seven, something like that, days away from November 3rd. Polling numbers are, although they are optimistic uh, for the Democratic Party and for Joe Biden at this time, I am also, um, um, I'm also, not, I'm also a pragmatist myself, and I know it's it's very, very, very early, and I think the, uh, I, I do believe this though, the the more the conversation is about the pandemic and about the economy, I think we as Democrats have a way better opportunity to win in November. Uh, because again, we all know that this is a referendum on the president. Um, this election is definitely a referendum on the president. Um, and the economy typically drives that discussion. And here we have an economy, I think today has the largest contraction uh, as far as the economy. Uh, I, I can't, it was like maybe 9% or so. Um, so long as the, I don't know how Trump can rebound other than driving down Joe Biden unfavorables. Um, that's what I think he's going to tend to do. Um, I think he already know he's going to lose the popular vote. He don't even care. He's going to lose the popular vote. He knows. So he's only caring about battleground states. And in those battleground states, what he's going to do is he's not trying to earn no new votes. He's just going to try to um, drive down Joe Biden's unfavorables. And I think um, I hope hopefully Joe Biden's VP pick is someone that um, can help. Uh, energize the base that um, if Biden do say something crazy, which he's known for saying sometimes, um, <laughs> uh, he's able to bounce back for So I, hope I, I know I'm all over the place, man, but I hope I kind of answer your question. Yeah, and and as we were talking, um, you know, I was thinking of the fact that Trump seems to also want to play up, um, you know, his being the law and order candidate. I remember he called himself the law and order candidate during the RNC in 2016. Um, and there's some undertones to that because it, there, there's parallels between, I think, this year and 1968. 1968, of course, was a year when there's a lot of social unrest. Um, there was a lot of uncertainty, and there was a lot of um, insecurity with the incumbent um, holding the White House. And Trump seems to embody all three of the major candidates in 1968 because you had Richard Nixon promising law and order. You had Hubert Humphrey, who was the incumbent. And you had George Wallace, who you know came with all that came with George Wallace in terms of race baiting and all these things. Because remember, recent week, I mean, recent days, he has claimed that Joe Biden is a, uh, a threat to uh, suburban America. Um, he is someone who is trying to play on fears, and, it, and it's not, you know, I don't know how you can take anything out. I, I don't know how you can take that in a different context. Um, but a Pew Research poll from July. Uh, mentioned that 41% of Americans said violent crime is a big problem in America. And that's compared with 58% who say that the coronavirus um, outbreak is a big problem and 63% who say that the ethics and government is a big problem. And then a Gallup poll showed that 3% of Americans say crime is the most important issue facing the country, only 3%. So Nate, uh, do you think that, you know, in light of what the priorities according to the polls are for most Americans, do you think that this is something, you know, paying, playing up the law and order theme? Do you think that's something that would uh, work to Trump's benefit or, or not? 
Um, I would say kind of not actually. So far, we've seen Trump play up the law and order, and it hasn't really worked. Uh, we've seen all of this happen, and Trump's polling numbers have even, have either stayed the same or he's seen them gone down as Biden's go up. And that's because we're in a completely different environment than what we were four years ago. 2016 really, to me at least, was more of a perfect storm where you had you know, a policy-focused campaign on one hand that didn't really connect well with uh, ordinary people uh, that, where the uh, candidate was kind of that uh, inner circle of American politics and uh, I guess the social lead as well, while the challenger was this person who could excite the masses but not as policy-heavy but had an easier time connecting to people. But now four years later, we can't, Trump can't run as the outsider when he's the sitting president. Uh, you know, I think, um, and because that, that uh, um, because where we are as a society has changed, Trump's strategy has to change. And we're seeing that Trump is having a very difficult time running against someone who isn't a woman, someone who isn't a minority. So even when he tries to attack Biden, he's not going against Biden specifically. He's saying it's the Bernie Sanders agenda. It's the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez agenda. It's the Ilhan Omar agenda because he doesn't know what to do with Biden. He you know, even with the unrest, even seeing Biden's weakness among more progressive factions of the Democratic Party, we see that everyone is pretty much locked in. We all agree we have to get Trump out and then we'll worry about the rest later. So I don't think law and order has really worked. Yeah. And, and as you were thinking, I was thinking about an argument or point I made to a lot of friends of mine, uh, folks who engaged even today, actually, uh, Facebook debate uh, as to, you know, why should we settle for Biden? Um, you know, lesser of two evils, all these. So the question is, or the point I made to them is, you know, you have in Biden someone who's not, you may not have him take a far left position on a lot of issues like student loan forgiveness, like, um, you know, a lot pertaining to the economy and um, on a lot of different, you know, table kitchen table issues, you may not have him as far left as you want him to be. Um, but as you mentioned, Nate, you know, being that, you know, most of my experience um, with the Democratic Party has been with the Southern Democratic Party, the Democratic Party in North Carolina and in Alabama. I kind of knew that it's going to be a hard sell if somebody like a Bernie Sanders was at the top of the ticket, um, because you'll have to convince people in the middle and people who don't even traditionally vote Democrat, but held their nose and, and voted for Trump because he wasn't. Remember, he, he kind of hijacked the Republican Party. They were not expecting there to be a Trump candidacy, you know, going into 2016. So they we went with him because, according to them, on their social conservative issues, he was more in alignment with their interests than uh, Hillary Clinton. And my question to them was, do you think that those folks would be won over four years in? Them now comfortable with the idea or notion of Trump as president, um, and familiar with it. Do you think that they would have continued to um, have doubt and, and enough doubt to cast a vote for another extreme, another polar opposite, Bernie Sanders? And I, I personally just didn't see that happening. Um, Chris, I'm interested in getting your take on it. Do you think that that was a valid argument, or do you think that is, you know, it's not fair, or you know, you never know? I know. For one thing, the folks I was hearing in the internships I had um, down in North Carolina, the DA and everything, there's already comparisons with Sanders and AOC and the squad. 
So they're already making this a Trump versus the squad race. I'm interested in hearing your take on this. Yes, I do know that that's the that's the that's the new attack that um, Trump is trying to land on Biden. It's calling him basically he is a tool of the left and trying to prop up AOC and others who they view to be um, problematic for middle of America or suburban America, however you want to frame it. Um, but it, it, it doesn't work because, um, first of all, Biden has been around um, in the public space for decades and people know his record, people know where he stands. And I think that it's hard to kind of dupe America into believing that he's something that he isn't. Um, I also think that most the most important question, and this is what um, I'm quoting David Pluff, you know, former campaign manager for uh, President Obama used to say, he said, if you, if you ask a question between two candidates, you ask a question, which candidate will fight for you? If you ask 10 people in a room, between Donald Trump or Joe Biden, it could be Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders. If you ask 10 people in a room, which candidate will fight for you? Just a simple question. If you aren't winning that question seven out of 10 times, if Trump is not winning that question seven out of 10 times, or if Biden is winning that question seven out of 10 times, then that's what gives you a better chance of understanding who's going to win. Usually it's those simple questions around who's going to fight for you, who has the best message, who has the best record to show that they have your interests in mind. And I think that that's a, that's a losing question for, for Trump right now, just looking at the state of the country, looking at the state of the economy. Um, and as you mentioned earlier in the question of law and, law and order, I think that it's so interesting that someone who, like Trump, who, who lights himself on fire every day as an entertainment piece, can also try to find himself to be the firefighter. You can't light yourself on fire every day and then say, well, I'm the person that can fix it. You can't be the person that creates unlawfulness um, at the at the congressional at, at me at the executive level, um, being impeached, and then saying I want to be the law and order president. It just it just can't work. And so he's not going to be that. He's not that candidate. And I, I'm hoping, and I believe that America will will understand this and do all that we can to uh, shift the narrative and move into a new direction going forward. Yeah, and, and as you were mentioned, as you were talking, you know, my mind was already bought to. Um, a few weeks or a couple of months ago, I believe, May, late May, when uh, Trump um, used, um, you know, custom border agents to throw tear gas at protesters in, in Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C. Um, for what appeared to be a photo op. I know a general uh, that helped organize that, that, that incident came out and apologized uh, for the role he played in ensuring that that took place. Um, and then he's now... We're seeing him, um, you know, it, it seems to be a flashpoint in this election because he kind of did the same thing in, in, in deploying these 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 agents in Portland, Oregon, for protesters. He mentioned or floated the idea of, of uh, deploying them in Chicago, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, Ariana, do you think that all of these incidents of him using, um, you know, border patrol, and keep in mind, even today, President Obama's eulogy for Congressman John Lewis, he made a stark comparison with, uh, George Wallace and, and Trump in, in that both advocated for using federal uh, agents, uh, law enforcement to quell protesters, those who are advocating for expanding elect the electorate, those who are like on the side of John Lewis. And um, if anyone wants to take the position that it, John Lewis wouldn't have been on the side, look at look at his record. You know, the man was he had given blood on the Edmund Pettus Bridge and he was doing that so that folks could have the right to vote. Um, are you know, interested in taking getting your take on this? 
Uh, you're, oh, sorry. Uh, can you just repeat the question? Oh, yeah. Well, do you think that, you know, the, the incidents of, of Trump deploying his agent, um, the use of federal uh, law enforcement to quell protests, um, to uh, basically, basically take the polar opposite position than those who are advocating for Black Lives Matter, those who are uh, protesting against the incidents of police brutality, such as uh, um, the ones that took place in May. The one that took place with the guy who was jogging. Um, do you think that these incidents would help or hurt uh, President Trump's election chances in November? Sorry, can you hear me? No? Can you hear me now? No. Okay, well, while we're working on that, uh, Cassandra, if you, can, if you can weigh in. I think it's because if there's multiple mics on at a time, uh, you can't hear Mike. Um, yeah. Um, okay, so your question is whether or not this law and order essentially is going to right, help or right. hurt Trump. Is that the Right, because I, I heard here? folks say, you know, when there's a lot of confusion and social unrest, People now, I disagree, but they said that they tend to vote Republican um, when there's a lot of confusion, when there's a lot of social unrest, when there's a lot, you know, uncertainty in the country. Um, and when you take into consideration the role uh, this administration's played in what seems to be a complete opposition to the Black Lives Matter protests, of course, they'll say, "Oh, we're we're against the um, violent protests," and they would try to portray the protests as all violent as opposed to the majority of peaceful protests that have been taking place. Do you think this would help or hurt uh, his, his chances in November? I think the tactic itself um, has the potential to help him in November if you know there's a certain segment of his popu the population who already supports him. And those are also the portion of the population who have a lot to lose if um, essentially their idea of their supremacy is lost. I feel like that's really the only core uh, value that really resonates with people, even if they don't want to admit that to themselves. So if those are the same people who are hearing these messages about violence and law and order that needs to, you know, quell these protesters, they're going to be convinced, you know, one way or another because they already were presupposed to believe that. Um, but that being said, I don't think that, you know, the same tactics that worked in the 1960s are necessarily going to work now because we have access to the internet, we have access to Twitter, we have people on the ground, you know, sending video of protesters singing songs, wearing t-shirts, you know, it's, it's much harder to like push a singular narrative when everyone has the ability to be a cameraman and a reporter. So, um, like, I think if we, um, take everything into stock. The fact that everyone is, you know, locked at home because of COVID, an unavoidable disaster that is now, you know, in enveloping our country, people are upset about it. Um, and it, it contributes to every single other civil unrest that we have. So um, I think that one of the, I hesitate to even say benefit, because I don't want to say that this disease has was necessary at all. But one of the things is we all have a common um, stressor right now. I think people 
are generally a little more willing to have some empathy for others just because we are all experiencing one very similar thing. And maybe, maybe, this is my hopeful note, that will extend towards this um, understanding that we do live in a society that was built on racism. We have the society that was built specifically to keep certain people in power. We have the system that we kind of allowed the president to have a lot of these powers based on a promise that he'll never do anything wrong with it. And now we see that that was a really bad idea. So um, I, I think this is a key turning point and it's possible that people are better in their nature and are more empathetic and that will lead to something better. I, I can't 100% say that will happen, but I have hope. That's my bottom line. And Ariana, are you able to uh, hear now? Can you weigh in? Yeah, sorry, I can hear. Uh, yeah, no, I think, um, I don't think that his his tactics will get him reelected. I think if anything, um, it's it's uh, helping Biden more so. Um, I just remember I was looking at an article today with CNN and they were talking about what's going on in Portland, Oregon. Um, and I remember uh, reading that the mayor, uh, Ted, Wheeler, Ted Wheeler, he was saying that uh, he didn't want um, he will, I'll, I can actually read it right now. He said that uh, we did not ask the feds to be here. We do not want them here. They're not helping the situation. They're not appropriately trained and we're demanding that they leave. Um, so it's showing it's showing there that, um, you know, if anything, it's it's worsening the situation, which shows that I guess that um, the, the chaos that he's, or the controlling that he's trying to cause, he's trying to get, uh, you know, the citizens under control and I guess help him in the polls, it's not working because we're it's making them even more upset. You know, once you have that that passion ignited, there's nothing to to uh die it down and unless you make that change. And right now we're uh we're mad about police brutality. We're mad about you know um defunding uh how the uh the government is defunding education but you know funding the police officers you know we're we're upset. And there's nothing that's going to change that. So if anything, if uh, Trump wants to get reelected, which I doubt uh, will happen, he needs to to listen to what's really going on and um, try to find ways to help. Yeah, and, and thank you. And, you know, I was remembering uh, a statement made by, um, as you were speaking, Ariana, uh, Trump's campaign press secretary, um, Hogan Gidley. He had said to MSNBC uh, that polls were heavily skewed. Um, and that the Democrats, he, he can't really blame the Democrats for not being enthusiastic for Joe Biden. Uh, he went on to say that, you know, when pushed on it, he went on to say that um, when you look at all the polls, they show similar numbers. All the polls have also flawed, flawed they're also flawed uh, methodology. Method, you know, they, they have a flawed methodology. He was, so he was critiquing the way in which these polls were being conducted. He said, let's be clear, the poll we talked about from CNN just came out, and I believe this morning had 26% Republican sample in exit polling in 2016. It was 33%. That's a 7% difference. So it's pretty obvious um, that as we move forward into the election, you know these polls are going to fl flow um, towards the Democratic Party. I remember thinking, you know, the night of 2016, I, I was wondering, who are these folks polling? Because it seemed as if the polling got it wrong. It seemed as if the trust that folks had in, you know, these thermometers that we use to, to, to take the political temperature of the country seem to be seems to be off. Um, I'm going to let you each weigh on it, but I want to start off with Nate. 
do you think that we should be more cautious and not take these polls at face value? Or, um, you know, do you believe that these polls, because there seems to be a wider margin than there was four years ago, um, is there some kind of trend that these polls are indicating about? Uh, it's a bit of both. We shouldn't let the polls trick us into getting comfortable, but there. But if we use the polls as kind of indicators, we do see that there is a kind of shift from okay, giving the keys to the guy who, you know, bragged about his lack of experience. Maybe wasn't the best idea. Maybe we should go back to someone who at least claims to know what they're doing. But you know, we don't want to get com as comfortable as. Uh, we in a corporate sense did in 2016, where because people in important areas didn't show up to vote, those longstanding democratic places were able to be won over by Trump, which saw him enter the White House. We don't want the same conditions to happen now, but because we have that indicator, we see, okay, maybe we can actually fight in places where we didn't think we could fight four years ago. Maybe we can win statewide elections in Texas. Maybe we can fight in Georgia. Maybe we can fight in Arizona. So it's a balancing act that we have to figure out, but it there's a potential that there's not just potential, there's fertile ground ready for harvesting. We just Thank have you. To go Mr. McCall, I'm right interested way. in getting your, your take because um, you know, you are someone that is relying on these polls heavily, being that you're yourself a candidate for office. And, you know, when we're looking at polling, it's not just the uh, you know, the presidential election that, you know, we're considering. We're also considering down ballot races like yours. Um, do you do you think that we shouldn't be as or do you think we shouldn't place as much faith in the polls um, this year? Well, um, again, like how, how I always say is this, I think at this point where we're at now, I think it's clear Trump is going to lose the popular vote. Hands down, hands down. So I, what I, I don't think. Personally, in my political, my, my personal opinion on it, I don't think the national polls matter. I think, again, we already know he's going to lose the popular vote. He knows he's going to lose the popular vote. I think the only polls that I think we should all be uh, be paying attention to are the battleground state polls. Um, I think those, those polls have a better indication of how the electoral college is going to be uh, decided come uh, November 3rd. Um, I think we it's also it's a big news flash to say, hey, uh, Biden is up 12 points, 13 points. And this is good for a fundraising. Hey, I, I know perfectly well uh, you have the momentum on your campaign and, um, and and things like that. It's great for fundraising. Um, but I think far as um, getting people comfortable in how the election is going, I don't think national polls is a great indication how things are going to be. I think the battleground polls are what I'm more concerned at. And uh, what I'm more concerned of, and it's, I find it so ironic now that you know Trump, when he first uh, was running in 2016 against Hillary Clinton, uh, you can watch his rallies, man. I'm, I'm part of how he, how he blew up. Um, I'm, I will take credit to that. I used to run home from law school and couldn't wait to go just laugh at a Trump rally because he used to say stupid things. I never thought he had an opportunity of winning. Um, but the news kept covering him and kept covering him and kept covering him. He got more momentum and momentum and momentum uh, as he went. And he used to actually go, he had a list of polls. He used to read, uh, I'm up 
20, 20 points here. I'm up 30 points here. And now all of a sudden that he's losing, now all, all polls are flawed. So it's kind of ironic uh, how he's definitely flipping the script. But I will also add this too. I remember on, on uh, November of 2016, that election, I thought Hillary Clinton had a bag. I was going off the national polls. Um, and I remember uh, my roommate, he's not, at the time I was in Durham, North Carolina, and Durham is heavily Democratic. So all we saw was Democrat stuff all day. We wasn't really conscious of the more battleground areas. Um, North Carolina was a battleground area, but we kind of knew Durham was going Democratic. Um, but anyway, I remember that morning, um, last polls I read, Clinton was up like nine points in national gonna kill him. She's gonna kill him. She's gonna kill him, right? And then something hit me um that, that morning. I was leaving the house. He was like, hey, she's up nine points. Like, is it possible? I was like, no, I don't think it's possible. But I said, but it's something that um I'm thinking about. And this was called the solid majority. Right. Um the solid majority. I think people are I will give Trump credit for being an embarrassment. I will give him credit. And I think sometimes too when these polls People are embarrassed to say they're going to vote for Trump. Um, so I am very conscious of that also, of that factor, too, when you're thinking about polls. There are people who are, who are diehard Trump supporters. They're going to vote for Trump. There are people who voted for Trump in 2016 and going to vote for him again just to say, I ain't no fool. I, I, know, I know who I voted for and I know who I want in the seat, although he's wrecking the country. And then there's people as well who are silent, um, who's like, yeah, I know, but I'm not going to tell you. I, I might say I'm an undecided voter, or I'll say I vote for Biden. When they get in their polls and they close, they close that curtain. I think you know there are some people who want to vote for Trump. So again, all, all in all, I do think the national polls are kind of irrelevant at this point, or except for momentum and fundraising. But the state and battleground polls are where I'm more focused, and I think the country uh, at this time. Yeah, and as you were speaking, I was thinking about this quote um, by Pauline Kael. She was an American film critic. Uh, this is back when Nixon won. She said, um, I can't believe Nixon won. I don't know anyone who voted for him. And there's this kind of feel that there are folks who just won't admit, there are folks who just won't admit who, you know, that they're voting for President Trump. And that's what happened in 2016. The, the surprise was the majority, I mean, the, the amount of people who, who, who did that? Now, these folks, as you mentioned, were not the majority because we know that Clinton won the popular vote. And I did make this argument to some other folks before. You never had a situation where, even when you want to go back to George W. Bush in 2000, in 2004, he ended up winning the popular vote. You never have somebody who gets in based on, based on electoral college numbers, loses the uh, the popular vote, and then the same thing happening again in the next re-election campaign. That, that's never happened. Chris, um, you look like you're itching to jump in, man. I'm, I'm, I just want to get your touch, like your your thoughts on this, because you've been heavily like, involved with the Clinton campaign. Yeah. So, yeah. So in 2016, as you all are recounting those days, I remember I was in Ohio working as a field organizer in Cleveland, knocking on doors, registering voters, and obviously checking the polls uh, nightly, checking 538, real clear politics, you know, the political report, just to see what's going on. And um, over time, you had to learn that polls are not law, right? They, they are not going to be determinant of the outcome. I think one way that, ways in which they can be helpful is like Mr. McCall said is it can help with fundraising and kind of give you a temperature check around momentum. I think it also can help 
Um, campaigns determine how they'll allocate resources and funds to different states. But I think that for us, our marching orders have to be based on who we want to see in the office going forward. If you're an average voter, if you're watching on this broadcast, you shouldn't be checking the polls to determine if you are going to register to vote or if you're going to register to receive a vote by mail application. You've got to make sure that you do what you can so that you can have um, the better, a better future um, and a better um, administration going forward. Um, I also will say that um, we also have to understand that polling, what we, the polls that we are receiving today are indicators of how people felt 10 days ago. That's what most strategists will say. So basically it takes a while for this data to be populated and for it to be shared. And basically they'll, what they'll say is, okay, so today, you know, John Lewis passed away, Herman Cain passed away, Trump put out a tweet about, um, you know, wanting to postpone the election. You know, there are a set of circumstances that have, you know, kind of cluttered the um, political brain at this moment. And you may, you may have a poster ask you today, how do you feel about the candidates? How do you feel about Joe Biden? How do you feel about Donald Trump? How do you feel about these particular issues? They'll ask you that today. And in two weeks, we'll see the uh, polling data be shared publicly. And in two weeks, there could be a whole new story that'll come out and will dominate that moment. So I think that we also have to understand that what polling does is an indicator of um, information that's gathered from a few days, I mean, two weeks ago, and uh, we have to continue looking forward and understanding that our marching orders are based on, you know, the values that we carry, um, the, the future and the vision for the future that we want. But polling should not determine right. um, our action. And, um, you know, as you were talking, I was just thinking about, you know, the fact <laughs> that, you know, campaigns that get a little bit too comfortable with polls seem to do so to their detriment. Um, I remember, you know, the 1948 election, uh, Tom Dewey versus uh, Harry Truman and Truman famously holds up the newspaper that says Dewey defeats Truman. And that back then wasn't a political upset. Nobody expected Truman to win. Um, when he became president, um, it was by an accident. The, uh, Franklin Roosevelt had died in 1945, April. Harry Truman gets in there and people start saying, what was the nation? You know, who is this person from, who's this country, uh, Harvard Asher from Missouri? And he ends up doing a lot of consequential things, such as the, the deployment of the atomic bomb, um, his stance on labor unions. Um, he was actually very much in line with, for the time being, um, the civil rights movement. Um, Amethyst, um, I'm interested in your thoughts in terms of, you know, the faith that we trust in polls. Um, you know, polls seem to be at a sweet spot right now for uh, former Vice President Biden. Do you think that this is a trend that will like be likely to continue, or do you think you know polls fluctuate? They go back and forth. They're not reliable, like Chris said. It's just a temperature as to how things were a few days ago, as opposed to right now. We can never really be too confident in these polls. I officially think that we cannot be confident in polls, and that they're just little indicators because when. I mean, like just shockingly that Donald Trump even won because I remember walking past my TV screen and seeing a blue California and then all these red states that have never been red before. And I'm like, hold the phone. So um, I think that, you know, polls, while they can be indicators of how we feel in the moment or two weeks ago, like Chris just told us, because I didn't even know that was a thing. Um, I'm just, I at this point, there are so many people that believe in Donald Trump, I mean, believe in his message, whether that be make America great again, whether that mean law and order. I just can't, I can't say that a poll is going to tell me that that man is not going to win 
although we're all hoping that he doesn't. But the way that people feel about him is is ridiculous with all that he does. So I I, I think polls are good indicators, but that's not going to tell me who's going to win it. So I want to transition to Senate. Speaking of polls, I'm looking at some polls myself and I want to transition to Senate polls. Um, you know, a lot of times we, we don't really as much attention as we should on the Senate race. But this time, the Senate race is interesting in that you have some really solid candidates running for office on the Democratic side. Mark Kelly, former astronaut, um, you know, running in Arizona, running against Martha McSally, who seems to be a little bit underwater in polling because remember, Martha McSally ran against um, the the uh, the senator who had been elected as the Democratic senator, Christian uh, Nielsen, I believe her name is. Well, she was now appointed by the governor of Arizona to replace John McCain after his passing. And so the two candidates who ended up running against each other end up now both serving in the Senate. And so it kind of explained the quick, you know, come around. She had the video with the dog and she was saying, oh, let's get behind her new senator. She knew that in the back of her mind, she was she had a, she had a Senate position coming her way. Um, but, you know, that aside that you have that in Arizona, you've got my home state. It seemed like 538 has Tom Tillis and uh, Cal Cunningham at a dead heat, 43 percent to 43 percent. You have um, Kelly and McSally, like I mentioned, 53% for Kelly, 35% for McSally. Um, if that's not underwater, I don't know what is. Uh, you've got Gary Peters in Michigan, 52%. John James, African-American Republican, 35%. These are huge. I mean, in polling numbers, these are huge, huge margins. Um, and it just seems like there's a trend here. It seems like there's a trend here. It, 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 you know, Usually you would have more of a close margin. Uh, but in this, it just seems like there's a, as um, Chiquez had mentioned out, a referendum, a referendum on uh, the current administration. So I want to throw this out there. Do you, being that, and especially, you know, Doug Jones in Alabama, you know, when did we think we'll see a Democratic senator coming out of Alabama? Um, and with my personal experiences with the Democratic Party in Alabama, Madison County, I know they weren't expecting it either in 2017, but they had in Roy Moore such a um, controversy-filled candidacy, you know, allegation after allegation, and not just allegation, but really weird allegations coming out the woodwork. But now they they go ahead and they nominate um, Tommy Tuberville. So, you know, former football coach, I believe, and you know, he seems more, more much more of a solid choice than Roy Moore, and um, um, you know the. The Trump's former attorney general, the one that Trump now distanced himself from. Um, do you all think that the Senate seems to be going in a direction for a blue wave? Or do you think that polls don't matter at the end of the day? Red states that are traditionally red states are going to stay red when you're looking at North Carolina, Alabama. Um, do you think that this is something that, you know, we should be more optimistic about or not? Um, Ariana? Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, no, I uh, I uh, think that we should be optimistic that um, there's going to be a blue wave. I was actually doing some research earlier today, um, looking at a few states that uh, will be possibly toss-up states, some states that are, um, I know for sure Georgia, um, well, that's one state that, we're, that I've been looking at um, with uh, Senator Purdue. And, you know, now uh, John Ossoff is running against him. And I think that uh, we're very optimistic that uh, Ossoff will win. 
Um, and so with that, that's uh, and we were super excited to see that, you know, how Georgia that is, you know, currently a red state is kind of, you know, turning towards a purple state. Um, and I think that that's what's going to happen for a lot of these other states. I think, um, you know, we definitely should be looking at um, Colorado, which is a Republican, uh, uh, which has a Republican um, senator, uh, Montana, Iowa, of course, Georgia, North Carolina, and Maine, um, because those are possibly states that will uh, either become a purple state or will go blue. Thank you. And, and you know, as you mentioned earlier, especially as it pertains to Georgia, and, I, and I'm actually in the, move, the process of transitioning and moving to Georgia myself, the one thing I'm worried about is <laughs> the one thing I'm worried about is the voter turnout suppression, the, the voter turnout suppression efforts. You know, in 2018, you know, there was a reason why Stacey Abrams did not become governor. Um, and we know that even the whole process with having a candidate who was eligible to run as a candidate and still serve as the secretary of state for the office and manage the electoral system. I mean, I mean, it, just on its face, even if you take D and R out of their names and just look at it just at face value, that just did not look right. It didn't look, it didn't look legit. But Nate, um, I'm interested in getting your 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 your, um, your insight because you know you and I both went to Oakland University, as did Chris, and you know we did have some kind of interactions with the local Democratic Party. So Doug Jones is someone who, you know, he's made appearances in, in Huntsville. Um, Huntsville is a very progressive city in um, Alabama, Northern Alabama. Do you think that, you know, Senate races like Doug Jones is just, that's a done deal for the Republicans? Or do you think that we have more of a fighting chance than we think? In a year like this, there's no such thing as a done deal. And that's one thing I've, uh, I've learned, you know, there's no such thing as a done deal when we're talking about elections. Uh, Doug Jones was able to win in 20s in his special election because he ran up the score in Alabama. He ran up the score in Birmingham and Montgomery, and he ran up the score in smaller cities like Selma. We shouldn't just write off uh, Doug Jones just because he's running in a state like Alabama. The Alabama Democratic Party and local organizers have, have already signaled that they're willing to fight. You know, the Senate really does look like it's going to go red. And as someone who is I grew up in the Northeast, you know, there, you know, a lot of safe seats for Democrats with the exception of uh, Susan Collins in Maine. But so I don't really have any Senate elections by me, but watching all these other races, maybe I don't, th maybe I'm not as optimistic about say uh, McGrath in Kentucky, but you know, when you look at races like uh, the Senate race in Montana, which is a traditionally red state, but already has a democratic Senator, the outgoing governor is a Democrat, and he's a very popular one who handled the pandemic very well. It's in polls, it's looking like he's got, you know, a better chance in this race than we think. We have better candidates this time around, and it goes back to what I said earlier about 2016 being a perfect storm. We picked up two Senate seats in 2016. Uh, 2018 wasn't really a great year as far as seats go. We, you know, we were defending seats in states like North Dakota, but we have a really big opportunity this year to win back some some seats. We have the opportunity to pick up uh, Arizona, where Mark Kelly, the the astronaut, the the former congresswoman's husband, is looking really good. Even Texas is more competitive than we thought it was going to be a year ago. People are willing to fight, and that's really a big deal. And as you were speaking, I was thinking about you know the conversation we had last week on this same platform 
where the panelists I had at the time, you know, we were talking about what's exciting in one location may not be what's exciting in another location. So for instance, the, the upset that happened in uh, the congressional race that just took place um, in New York, where the more progressive candidate beat the incumbent um, who has been in office for years. Uh, we know AOC, you know, her story and, you know, the, the, the fact that she was able to beat um, an incumbent Democrat who was, you know, a home, a staple in, in, in the House of Representatives. So, Cassandra, I'm interested in knowing, are there any Senate races that you're particularly looking at um, that you think that the Dems have more of a chance than the Republicans? Or do you think that consistently across the board, it just looks like a referendum? So folks are going to turn voter turnout will be high, it seems. And the polls indicate that it's going to be a huge gap. Um, do you think that there are certain states that we may pick up, but at overall the Republicans will hold the majority? Or do you think it, the Democrats seem to be on a on a track to win back the majority of the Senate? Um, well, I know what I'd like, and what I'd like is for the Senate to switch back to a Democratic majority, because as we've seen, the Senate has been a roadblock at literally every turn in the past four years, three and a half years. Um, I've been paying a lot of attention to the one that you mentioned, Kentucky and McGrath, because um, McConnell has consistently been very disappointing. Um, he's been the subject of a lot of ire from, I think, everyone involved, including some um, Republicans. So, um, and I, I think that he and the rest of Republicans recognize that because they recently very clearly are, um, are starting to show that there are cracks between them and Trump. I think they're trying to distance themselves in order to somehow save themselves, save face, um, be able to have some kind of plausible deniability when the time comes for people to, you know, reconcile the actions that they've taken in the last three and a half years and say, you know, how does this actually represent us? How did you help us? And the, the bare bones and true answer is they haven't. So the only way for them to really hold on to, you know, any kind of power is to distance themselves from what I think is inevitably going to be what they scapegoat. And I think that's going to be Trump. Um, now, I, I don't necessarily think that that's a winning tactic. I think it seems like a very defensive tactic, and it seems as if they themselves recognize the danger. So to me, that, that's a hopeful indication. Um, that being said, Senate seats are so much um, more institutional than House seats. House seats can be flipped a lot more frequently, and they represent smaller districts, so the community that they're actually engaged with is so much smaller. Um, and I think for Senate, since there's only two of them per state, people, you know, for better or for worse, are not as well versed in Senate races, even if they are the more prominent ones that people know about more from, you know, television, media, etc. Um, I guess the short answer is I think we are definitely going to see at least a few turnover seats. I think that McConnell's um, in a really, really bad position. Um, and I think that the fact that Beto O'Rourke was so close to overturning Ted Cruz's seat last time was already a positive indicator because um, he's a Democrat in Texas. So um, I think that the Republicans ha um, have reason to be running a little bit scared and be a little defensive because that's how I see it. Yeah, and another part. thing that makes this election cycle interesting, the next factor is the Lincoln Project factor. I mean, if you've seen these ads, these Lincoln Project ads have hit it right on the nose. They have a target. And they have not missed the mark. It seems like Republicans know how to hit 
it seems better to me in my personal opinion. They know how to hit the counterpunches more than Democrats. And to have a, a, a Republican group have an ad and they say, call, they know their names and they show you the image and they have the, the name in large print for you to see. I think that it has a psychological factor too, because when a lot of folks may not know some of the names, but if you put these, these names in front of them in print and bold, and then they go in a voting booth and they recognize the name and then they recognize a, a negative connotation to that name. I just think that's going to have an effect on it. And, and to have not just the Lincoln project, but you've got George W. Bush alumni, you've got so many different Republican groups who are coming together, funding these, these ads, um, running them in places that are very accessible for people to see. It's not like a secret, you know, only cable news station or anything like that. You're seeing them on YouTube. You're seeing these things on social media, um, places that people would, would normally go to. You're seeing these Lincoln Project ads. Shaquez, I'm interested because I know you're on the ground in South Carolina. There's a, a big race, Jamie Harrison, who was a former staffer for Congressman Clyburn, running against Lindsey Graham, who has made himself uh, an embedded part of, of the Washington, D.C., uh, you know, Republican culture. Do you see, you know, you know at the end of the day, South Carolina, and I know that um, Colbert actually made a, a joke early in the primary and had mentioned that, you know, something was just like non-existent, like the South Carolina Democratic Party. And I'm wondering if, you know, Jamie Harrison actually has a chance against Lindsey Graham. Um, I think he, listen, I was about to see, I, I was going around the, the, uh, the uh, panel here. No one said Jamie Harrison. I said, well, man. Maybe I was a little too optimistic. Um, listen, I'm gonna tell y'all. Y'all know everybody on this panel definitely knows money take you a long way in elections. Um, uh, Jamie Harrison just raised over 14 million dollars last quarter. Um, that's like tremendous, tremendous, tremendous. Um, and I think what, what he's doing is um, definitely um, is it's a referendum on Donald Trump as well as a referendum on Lizzie Graham, who is the biggest flip-flopper. I, I mean, definitely, I think, one of the biggest flip-floppers in, in the Senate at this moment. I mean, he was a staunch Trump, uh, uh, never Trumper. And then once he realized, oh, snap, I got an election in a couple of years <laughs> um, in, my, in South Carolina, I think Trump won South Carolina by like 22 points or so. Um, I think he looked at the numbers and said, if I wanted to, I don't want to have a strong primary. I need to start being a Trump lover. And now he's a Trump lover, and and it's funny how Jamie Harrison plays his ass. Uh, half of it is pro, is never Trump. Half of it is supporting Trump. Um, it's just it's just a, a whole mess. And I honestly believe, um, listening to people on the grounds, that he has a legitimate chance, man. And most times I tell people all the top, um, I, I will say, I, yeah, I don't think it's going to happen. But I honestly believe that, um, especially from a person like Jamie Harrison, who was told his whole life he couldn't do things. Um, you know, I think he, he's definitely using this as a motivating tool to run hard and run scared, man. Um, again, it's South Carolina, so um, I understand the enormity of the task that's ahead of us. But the man's raising money, man. And I know in politics, I know in campaigns, this when this time you're sitting down in that war room, you're looking at where the money at, <laughs> what you have to do, how many more voters you have to reach. Um, you're looking for the money. He has it. Um, and that's something that's going to go a long way. And that's the reason why um, 
I think um, a real clear politics, move his seat from a uh, safe Republican to likely are. Um, and this is South Carolina, folks. This ain't, this isn't Florida. This isn't North Carolina or other, uh, or Virginia, others, you know, Southern states that has you know, went a little purple. South Carolina is red. Um, but I think what you're saying is, again, in this referendum election, although it typically happens in the midterm year, I think this is definitely a referendum still. People finally got the opportunity. They feel like, I, I think a lot of us felt as if we left a lot on the table in 2016. And that's how Trump became um, president. And I think people are like, okay, at the end of the day, um, we have to come out again and vote. Um, and I believe that Republican candidates um, suffer from it uh, tremendously. And I think Lindsey Graham may be a victim um, of that suffering. So, yeah, Jamie Harrison all the way. Thank you. And, and as you were talking, um, you know, I was just thinking about the ad, the Lincoln Project ad that had Lindsey Graham, you know, on the campaign trail. He used, you know, an expletive to describe the current president while he was running against him. And then all of a sudden he switch he switches and you see him on morning talk shows doing making a complete 180. And then you have the ad with Joe Biden where he's saying almost in tears. The man I mean if you don't see sincerity in this man's face, I don't know what we he looks like he was on the verge of crying and explaining why Joe Biden was such a decent human being. And why if you don't if you have a problem with Joe Biden, something is seriously wrong with you. I mean, to have that as a picture, and I don't know how many times these ads have been running in South Carolina. I, I, I'm very curious to know. Like, if I had, if I was living in South Carolina, how many times am I seeing these ads on regular TV? But um, you know, the impact that these ads have, um, I think, is very. It's going to be very interesting. Um, but I wanted to transition to the Senate Relief Bill, um, the new Senate Relief Bill. It seems as if Congress is not going to come to an agreement. Uh, we know that there have been more. Cons- there have been more rollbacks on the Republicans' proposal. Um, they want to, instead of having $600 a week for unemployment benefits, want to scale back to $200 a week. Um, and there have been more, you know, less generous uh, proposals that have been, um, you know, floated around by GOP senators. Uh, Mitch McConnell, they want to call it the HEALS Act, um, and it stands for um, <laughs> the it stands for the Health Economic Assistance Liability Protection in Schools Act. Um, they're drafting, you know, different proposals. But on the flip side, you've got House Democrats saying, you know, we're not going to support that because, you know, nobody can live of $200 a week. And I want to get your guys' thoughts on whether or not you think that the politics uh, surrounding this bill, think in my mind, this is coronavirus relief bill. Um, do you think that this would come into effect for Demo- for voters, um, swing state voters, middle of the road voters? Do you think that they will look at this and say, you know, I'm looking at the party that's that seems to be more, you know, generous towards me in terms of this very difficult time I'm dealing with? I may be at home working from on, on the computer. I may be unemployed. I may be laid off. Um, Ariana, do you think that this is something that will come to hurt? The Republicans, it seems as if there's a huge difference between the first stimulus uh, package that came out a few months ago and the one that's about to be released now. Well, for one, I, I, I guess for me, when I was when I saw that they were uh, cutting it from 600 to 200, um, I actually think I saw um, 
a article where they were saying that pretty much the Republicans or uh, I think it was two Republican senators. I can't remember um, how they were saying that they were they uh, the reason why were they cutting is because people were taking advantage of the um, of unemployment. And of course, there are people that are going to abuse the system. However, you know, what about the people that aren't abusing the system that actually need this money that, you know, um, that that they're living off of this because they've lost their jobs due to COVID-19. Um, also, I, I still don't understand why uh, they're only giving us a one-time $1,200, you know, check. I, 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 I'm not understanding as, you know, looking at other countries where, uh, especially Canada, where they're providing um, it, and also, you know, healthcare and education, but looking at Canada and seeing how they're providing their uh, citizens with, you know, monthly checks um, and seeing how, you know, they think that, you know, people can live off $1,200 um, when there's, you know, when actually there's, they said this was to be a new, new, uh, new phase of COVID-19. We don't know what it's going to look like. Um, how are we how are we going to survive? And then I'm, now I'm thinking like you know with that new phase, how are people going to survive off of two hundred dollars of unemployment? Um, so I think that depending on what this act will look like, it will change um, people's perspective of the Republican Party, and that may you know in a sense help the Democratic Party because they've noticed now that you know the uh, the when the Democratic Party you know they will fight for you they'll fight for your needs whereas the republicans they think that we're just taking this money and just kind of pocketing it cassandra what's your response to you know mitch mcconnell took to the senate floor and he said you know the american people do not support uh you know putting up large sums of money for folks who are Um, well, you're frozen right now, so I don't know what the whole uh, quote was. <laughs> um, but I, I'm assuming that you're talking about um, the response to Mitch McConnell's um, basically assertion that people are taking advantage of the system and that um, basically cutting it back will encourage people to go back to work. The single thing I would just point to is the military budget that they're trying to slip in there like the extra $8 billion or something is something like that. It, it's a very clear allocation of where their priorities are. And uh, it's not with protecting people who are losing their jobs and losing their health care and losing um, child care and like basically having their entire lives disrupted. So I think we've lost him. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you. So I want to take it over. Um, I definitely say that um, slipping, taking down unemployment coverage from 600 to 200 is definitely a bad choice, especially when you consider that well, a few months ago when the original stimulus passed, what what the what we saw this Congress do was give everybody $1,200 and say good luck for the good luck for you know covering rent deciding whether you want to pay groceries or to pay for your COVID treatment, have fun with your $1,200, we'll see you later. So it's good that they're going to provide another round of checks. And this time, I think the Senate bill and House bills both call for including people who are dependents in 2018, 
so college students who are still considered dependents, uh, that's good, but we can't just cut down unemployment coverage, especially because a lot of people don't have jobs to go back to. So the Democrats definitely have an advantage because they've already passed a bill that, to me at least, is much better in my completely unbiased opinion as a registered Democrat. But uh, it's I don't think uh, cutting benefits yeah, has ever been a good is, idea. Um, we've seen the sense of urgency in the House that we do not see in the Senate. Uh, the Senate side and McConnell's very specific quotes are all about, oh, we'll get to it, like, it might come out next week, maybe a week after. And people living right now are living very, very day-to-day, -day, very stressed. They want, they need assistance now. And so the fact that the uh, Senate Majority Leader is so laissez-faire about this shows a really stark disconnect between him and the people that he's supposed to serve. And I think that people will see that. I think that they'll recognize that, you know, they're not very pressed about what people's lives need. They're more concerned about the appearance of just giving handouts, which in its own way is, in my opinion, sort of morally bankrupt because like if people need help, you know, and they're asking for help, it's sort of a government's role to provide that. Acting as if like um, punishing people by lowering these unemployment checks is somehow going to galvanize people is just faulty. If you had, you know, if there were jobs to go to, and if this was not a pandemic, maybe. I'm not even going to say it's correct, but maybe. But right now is not the time to try and make a stance about, you know, work ethic. Uh, I, I think that that's a, it's a very strange traditional thing to hold on to at this moment. Yeah, I think the work ethic conversation coupled with the we being the party of fiscal responsibility and making sure that we can no longer incur, incur more debts for um, our country. This is really funny to me because this is the same party that passed the steepest tax cut um, in 2017 that gave so many tax breaks to the wealthiest corporations and businesses um, across this country. And then also when we think about some of the um, SBA loans and grants that went out to, that was supposed to go out to small businesses, um, we saw big companies like the Lakers and uh, what was it, Shake Shack and other places um, getting handouts. And so if we're gonna have a conversation about fiscal responsibility, let's have an honest one, but let's also make sure that it, is, it focuses on um, supporting um, those who have struggled the most. And um, as Michael explained in, in my introduction, um, I work for a district office for a state representative here in Southwest Philadelphia. And uh, we get calls from constituents every single day Folks who are dealing with unemployment um, have been unemployed um, since the beginning of the pandemic and are struggling to pay rent. Rent is due tomorrow. Bills are due in a couple of weeks, you know, and people are struggling now. And so for Congress and our leaders in Washington to try to play politics and do some um, offhand lecturing, people just don't want to hear that right now. And we've got to do all that we can, give all that we can to support those families in need and small, real small businesses, local businesses um, in need. So, yeah. Thank you all. And now I want to use this time being that time it seems to be slipping away. And I'm sorry about my internet connection, but I'm back. And I want to talk about, you know, being that, you know, we're so close or at the cusp of former Vice President Biden announcing uh, his running mate. We're almost at the convention season. Um, I wanted to get your take as to who you all would think would be the best uh, VP for former Vice President Biden. 
why would they, you know, be the best uh, choice, you know, electorally, practically, politically. Um, and I've already made my opinion known on the first broadcast that we've had that my my view is that Elizabeth Warren, to me, uh, is <laughs> Elizabeth. Just before, let me explain myself. Elizabeth Warren to me would be my choice. Um, during the, the primary season, she seemed to be an excellent uh, campaigner in terms of fundraising numbers. Uh, she seems to also be the closest uh, thing to Bernie Sanders under consideration. And I'm worried about the apathetic Bernie voter who didn't you know, get their weight two election cycles in a row, uh, very hesitant and un uninspired by the Biden candidacy. And I, you know, typically, historically, you know, JFK chose Lyndon Johnson so that he could solidify the Democratic Party in 1960. Back in those days, Texas was a play for Democrats. And Lyndon Johnson did deliver Texas. So he offered a political um, advantage in being able to talk to Southern Democrats and also win a huge electoral state like Texas. Uh, Reagan chose H.W. Bush. It wasn't for a geographical reason, I believe, but it was more so for a political reason. Bush was more of a country club Republican. Reagan was more of an ideologue. He wanted to be the FDR of the right. Uh, he is uh, very staunch right wing at the time. I knew, you know, even Professor Foster, uh, who was actually on the broadcast too, had mentioned that during that time, he didn't think that Reagan would be elected because the idea was that he was too extreme. He was too far right. And uh, I believe the Jimmy Carter campaign, I mean, actually celebrated a little bit when Reagan uh, became the nominee in 1980. Uh, but you know, historically, there seems to be a pairing of two, you know, political people who seem to complement each other in some way, somehow. Uh, I made the case against Camilla Harris, and I know it may, I may get a lot of pushback because I had said that even Mickey Mouse could give us uh, California because it's going blue no matter what. But, um, you know, being that she, she dropped out, not for any other reason other than the fact that she was doing poorly in terms of fundraising. Uh, Biden was uh, is also struggling with fundraising. Elizabeth Warren, a few months, uh, I think a month ago or a few weeks back, had a fundraising teleconference, raised $7 million for Biden. I'm curious to know if you disagree, I'm sure you do, <laughs> why you disagree and who would be your choice. I'm gonna go ahead and start with uh, Ariana. Can I actually go last? <laughs> Sure. Uh, Chiquez, go ahead. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely, I'll hop in first. Um, and before we before we swing to that request, I want to say um about these um unemployment uh, checks. I think the biggest person who's winning um this conversation here is Andrew Yang. I think if he was able to come back <laughs> and say that uh, that basic income plan, I think a lot of people will be more uh, receptive of this time. So if he runs again in uh, 2024, 2028, I definitely think he'll have a lot of momentum on his campaign because people actually saw how uh, direct income took them with finances. Um, so I think he'll have a lot of uh, sway come the next election. Um, but again, uh, back to the VP race, I am the, I, I think I'm one of the biggest Elizabeth Warren fans. Oh man, I love him. Um, I love her. I love her to death. I love her to death. Um, I kind of campaigned for her down here in South Carolina, but it's tough getting on uh, um, people of color to vote, you know, kind of be more of that to vote for her because you know, she's 
He's a progressive and most progressive, most to be honest with you, most white progressive struggle with the black vote, primarily in the South, on West Island, Um, But looking at it, I would love to say Elizabeth Warren, right? Because it kind of helps mold both sides. But you got to think about it. I think we're going to have now, we're going to have Joe Biden, who's going to have loose lips. He say something. It, it could be. I'm, I'm not putting anything past Joe Biden. He could say things that could hurt. So they're looking for the Donald Trump team is looking for anything now to attack. They're, they're throwing all this stuff at Joe Biden, and it's not working. It's not working. It's not working. So his VP pick must be safe. Elizabeth Warren is not safe. They're going to attack her. About the heritage, about the Native American heritage stuff, it's not going to be good. You're going to have a lot of people of color very uh, ticked off about it. Um, and again, and also too, the Bernie Sanders people, the Bernie Sanders voters. Um, I'm a little bit more supporter, and I know for a fact, true diehard Bernie uh, Bernie Sanders supporters are very uh, um, uh, pessimistic about this uh, more. You know. They, they thought she was kind of trying to cater to the middle uh, towards the end of when she was rising in the polls. She was trying to undercut um, um, Bernie Sanders. And then the whole thing about he mentioning that um, he thought that she couldn't, there wouldn't be a female president. Um, so a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters are not that receptive of him. Um, so I think with that, I just think it's, she's kind of out of the, out of the picture. I think if we're serious about winning elections, um, if we're serious about winning, I think me personally, I love us a little bit more, but I think we have to go to we have to get a, a candidate who is who can help us win the Midwest. And I think the governor of Michigan, Congressional Gretchen Whitmer, if I'm saying it correct correctly, is she's she she's she's a woman which helps us out. I think she she caters to that suburban, um, that, that white suburban woman, which is something we need. Um, I think it's, it's definitely changing more towards the Democratic Party, but I think it's very, very helpful. And she's from the Midwest, and I think the Midwestern uh, region, which is definitely almost the top, top of the state, is something that we should focus on. I definitely think she's a perfect candidate for it. Um, Kamala Harris, I love her to death as well. I just think, um, what does she bring? I mean, she she's a Probably going to be the, one of the next presidents going for the pastor. It's just more sort of line. California is always already a given. Um, she she's a moderate fundraiser, and then uh, 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 thirdly, I don't forgot my third point. But thirdly, <laughs> thirdly, of <laughs> oh, again, I, I love I love Kamala. I just don't think uh, she would. Oh, sorry, I know third point. That's why I'm running over. Biden has. I, I hate to say it, but Biden has that kind of a strong black support. As a Barack Obama has them. So what does she bring? She brings that supposed to get black vote with her, with her, but I think Biden already has that. So now he should be trying to broaden his base. I think he broadened his base with a candidate like Gretchen Whitmer, who's not a she's not a really polarizing figure, but I think she is definitely a great place, a great shoe in for her. Sorry for him. Yeah, and no, no, no. As you were talking, I, you know, you brought my memory back to the primary process, and uh, you know, I remember when Elizabeth Warren came out, and I was surprised at 
the way she attacked Bernie Sanders. There was this pressure, remember, to distance herself or have some kind of differentiation between her and Bernie Sanders because it seemed as if up until that point, they were always in lockstep with each other on the issues. And so the issue became, okay, we're getting serious. Iowa caucuses are coming around the corner. How do we actually differentiate, differentiate from each other so that when people go to these caucuses, um, you know, they have a reason as to why they're going to either one of the campaigns. Um, Professor Foster was on the program two weeks ago and he had mentioned, you know, he would rather win the Senate than to win the presidency. And what he meant was that if Elizabeth Warren, you know, goes ahead and runs and successfully, you know, they go, they go on together to win the nomination um, and the presidency, the concern is that there's a Republican governor in Massachusetts and that he will replace Elizabeth Warren with another Republican. And so the Senate, the balance of the Senate will be tipped back more in favor for the Republican side. Now that was both, you know, valid, valid points. Um, but I'm interested, um, Amethyst, in your view, who is the best pick for Biden? Why, um, you know, would they improve it, his chances and how so? So uh, I love Stacey Abrams. And I mean, like in an ideal world, if Amethyst was just pick somebody that would happen, I truly do love Stacey Abrams. I think she's very strong, very passionate. And she came up in to this political world with a lot of um, with a lot of fight and a lot of people were against her and she still like made it happen and made it work and stuck to her values without swaying. Um, so I really love Stacey Abrams. However, I do understand that there's political likeness to consider. There's um, someone who's gonna help uh, Joe Biden govern um, day one on the ground running, even though as we know, experience didn't matter in this election at all, the last election, but like the person that's coming in is literally gonna be the cleanup crew. Um, and I think someone, we would also have to consider someone who would lead the Democratic Party if Joe Biden only ran on one term um, or something, God forbid, happened. So it may not be popular, but I think that Susan Rice also brings something to the table as far as foreign policy is concerned. You gotta worry about the whole Benghazi stuff as far as like people like coming at her in um, a lot of uh, like, what am I trying to say? Like a lot of ads and a lot of, you know, backlash and all that kind of stuff. I feel like you have to worry about that with Susan Rice. But I think that she knows what she's doing coming in and that she has a lot of experience. And like I said before, experience apparently didn't matter last election, but I thought I think she would be a good person to come in on the ground running, knowing what's going on and being able to do something. However, if it was Amethyst Choice, Stacey Abrams. Chris. Oh, you're muted. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. So I know that uh, Vice President Biden is planning to uh, make his announcement within the first week of August. And so we should all get ready for all the speculation and, you know, all the stories that are going to run within the next few weeks, the leaked um, quote to be made here from Biden's inner circle or people who think they are in his inner circle. Um, but I think that there are a few sort of certain circumstances that we have to consider as we think about who we, who we may pick and why. And I think the first most important kind of measure for a vice president is um, are they ready and prepared or qualified to be president of the United States? 
you know, vice president is one heartbeat away from that seat. Um, and so someone who is going to be Biden's running mate has to be qualified um, to be president of the United States, um, no matter what. And I think that um, some of the names who have risen to the top um, meet those meet that first qualification. You know, Senator Kamala Harris, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, um, Susan Rice, who has the strongest foreign policy experience of anyone in the field. We've heard um, rumblings about um, Congresswoman Karen Bass, who was a former Speaker of the House of the State of California, who has a tremendous uh, resume as well. And so I think all of those, um, each of these individuals are, are great candidates, have great potential to be a strong vice president and potential president of the United States, as well as um, a, a um, you know, armor bearer for the Democratic Party going forward. But I think that um, you also need someone who is going to um, be able to be a strong messenger as well as a strong fundraiser for uh, Vice President Biden. And I think that on those two qualifications, Elizabeth Warren is a really strong candidate. Um, she has been, in terms of um, political figures, she ranks second in terms of um, raising money for Joe Biden next to Barack Obama. So you're looking at two people who have raised the most money for Joe Biden specifically for him. It's been Barack Obama and then Elizabeth Warren. She's a great fundraiser. And then also just looking at her message discipline and her ability to really tell stories to people and connect with people can really make her another strong voice um, on the trail for Vice President Biden. So I I am too am a strong fan of uh, Senator Warren, um, but I also think that Kamala Harris um, brings uh, good qualifications to the ticket. I think that it'll be tremendous to see for the first time a black woman um, on, the, on a presidential ticket. Um, it will make history. I think that we should be, as African-American people in America, should be encouraged to see that and be willing to support her if she becomes a nominee. Um, but it's also clear that if you are looking for a vice president to determine who you're going to vote for in November after all we've seen in these last few weeks, um, we're going to have some problems. And so I, I understand that we, we put a lot into account for the vice president pick, but it doesn't, it shouldn't be who we determine um, in November. It should just be, it should just kind of give a better picture of how they're going to govern in January. Right, right, right. And I, and I like your analysis as to, you know, for, first of all, I didn't know that so many people would agree with me, but I like your analysis too as to why Elizabeth Warren, you know, would be a strong candidate outside of fundraising, you know, her ability to stay on message. She was one of the most disciplined uh, campaigns out there. With Bernie Sanders, you had Bernie Sanders. I want to say one thing. Go ahead, go ahead. I think what's the reason why Elizabeth Warren is she came like I think her biggest supporters were the the educated, like people who had advanced degrees. So I think I think most of the people here have, have, are in law school or things like that. I think if you look at it, the educated class were the people who definitely who resonated well with her because of the, the policies. When we we actually saw a person who actually did their homework, and to me that gets me every time. And I, I love people to see. I like to see people do their homework. And she's the perfect candidate for that, man. So I think we're not a good sample to say why we're the Warren supporters or not. I think it's already out there that people with our education status are going to be um, a little more. And thank you for bringing it out, that out, because there is a um, socioeconomic uh, factor that we have to consider, too, as to what would appeal to uh, the electorate. Um, Ariana, your thoughts on, you know, your preferred VP choice for Biden. Um, and I want to throw this twist in there because I threw it in there when we talked about it two weeks ago. 
And that is there. I remember in 2008 in the summer when then Senator Barack Obama was running against Senator Hillary Clinton, that there was this, and, and then he ended up defeating her in the primary. Um, there was this scene, a footage of a woman, a lot of angry white um, suburban white democratic women who had claimed that the democratic party had thrown them aside. And so I was curious as to your thoughts on whether do you think, um, you know, that could, or putting a black woman in the VP slot this time around, you know, and potentially having the first female vice president being an African-American woman uh, vice president before you have a white, a white woman um, serving in that capacity. Do you think that would serve um, as somewhat of a backlash in the uh, fall campaign? Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, I do think um, it could serve as a backlash. However, I think um, right now, I mean, I, personally, uh, my choice would have been Stacey Abrams as well. Um, <laughs> uh, I think just right now, um, she had, she's, she would do a good job as, uh, as a vice president. Um, I think that her ability to, I mean, if you see what, what happened in Georgia, the fact that, you know, she was, you know, very, very close to receiving uh, the governor's seat, uh, but due to, you know, voter suppression tactics, uh, she wasn't able to. But I think that she um, she would be able to uh, help campaign and get those people that normally wouldn't vote uh, to actually go out and vote. Um, however, I do think there's uh, that her and Biden would clash, you know, with a lot of their uh, policy issues. Um, personally, uh, I, I used to think that, um, Keisha Lance Bottoms would have been a, a good second, uh, second runner up as a, you know, a black woman, um, candidate. However, you know, I think with what's going on in Atlanta right now, um, a lot of the issues, so especially dealing with COVID and also, um, you know, how the governor of Georgia right now was suing her, uh, due to, um, her mask mandate, I think that would, uh, I think that would kind of uh, put her more so into the negative category and no one really looking at her as a candidate um, due to, you know, what's going on. Um, I am personally a fan of uh, Elizabeth Warren as well. I think that um, her policy issues, I think that she's actually, I think she appeals more to the young voters as well as, you know, the older voters. Uh, I know when she talked about uh, reducing student loan interest, um, you know, all everyone was excited. Uh, when she talked about uh, reparations, <laughs> everyone was excited. Um, so I think that she would be a great candidate. I think that she's able to appeal to, uh, to everyone. But also, I think that, you know, Biden will throw a curveball. We never know. You know, I think that, um, you know, we think that we have this list, this set list of people that could possibly be uh, vice presidential candidates. And I think that he may throw in someone that we've We've seen, but we've never really uh, paid attention to. So I think uh, that it would be a surprise, to be honest. Yeah, um, Nate. You're on mute. All right, thank you. Well, starting out, uh, I was a huge Elizabeth Water supporter in the primaries. Um, I donated to her campaign. I had Warren stickers. Fortunately, I don't really have a place to put them, but you know, I do have them. Um, but that being said, I don't know that I want, I necessarily want Warren as vice president. I, um, there is the Senate seat to take into account, although Massachusetts doesn't have a really deep Republican bench. There still is a Republican governor, there's a Republican lieutenant governor, 
there are people you could put in that seat for at least two years to hold any sort of forward progress. And I do uh, believe that her talents are better served as Secretary of the Treasury, where she gets to oversee financial regulation, or as Secretary of Commerce. Um, Stacey Abrams, I love Stacey Abrams. A lot of that, a lot of the reason we're talking about her now is because of a speech she gave a year ago. So it says a lot about her ability to seize the moment, um, her ability to fundraise, her ability to inspire. But I also know that she really wants to be governor of Georgia. And there has definitely been a racial slant against Abrams' candidacy for vice president, as far as her openly saying that she wants to be considered. As minority leader in Georgia, she represented more people uh, in, uh, in, uh, in that office than Pete Buttigieg did as mayor of South Bend, but only one of them was considered to be a serious contender for the White House. So there's a definite racial slant there. Um, but I do understand that she uh, that she's always stated her dream is to be governor of Georgia. So if she uh, chooses to do so, then that's you know her prerogative. Although I do think that there is a future for her in national politics. Kamala Harris, California is a safe seat. It's a safe Senate seat. You don't really lose much by adding to the ticket, but California is safely blue. And I do think Kamala's, if we wanna give this, if Joe Biden wants to project this broad coalition and that he's going to be this caretaker, it's a lot better for him to, choose the best people for the best jobs instead of trying to appoint an heir to see who's gonna run the party in 2024 and on. So it might be better to have her as say attorney general where her talents would be better served. Uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, I'm really not as high on her as other people are. She didn't, she barely won her mayoral race in Atlanta, which is one of the bluest and blackest cities in the country as a black woman. So that doesn't inspire a lot of confidence in me uh, for her ability to deliver Georgia. Uh, in the presidential election or her ability on Georgia's down ballot on Georgia's two Senate races and in hotly contested House races. Uh, Val Dimes is someone who's gotten a lot of buzz. Uh, I do see the appeal in her, but outside of impeachment, she doesn't really have much of a national brand, although she is from a swing state, but I'm not as high on her as my, my parents actually are huge Val Dimes fans, but, and I understand the appeal. It's just not for me. Karen Bass is someone who recent uh, gossip has said is a big front runner. Um, actually would be satisfied with her, even though she does not, she might not be as big of a name. It does give the impression that a, of a caretaker. Karen Bass is someone who is a big progressive and I am a fan of the work she does in Congress. Although if I, in my opinion, if Joe Biden is going to look at black women from California, he should definitely take a look at Barbara Lee, who has been a big leader in the anti-war movement on Capitol Hill. Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan is very popular. You know, she easily won her state, uh, uh, statewide race in a swing state. Um, and she would definitely do a lot to boost Michigan, but Michigan isn't looking at, Michigan is looking at very likely to flip back anyway. And she is the daughter of a Blue Cross Blue Shield executive, which is one of the largest health insurance companies in the country. I don't know what that looks like for, you know, healthcare reform, especially as she stated her opposition to popular policies like Medicare for all. But I do know that she is uh, someone who can win, win, win races and fundraise. Um, Susan Rice as well is someone who, remember picking the right people for the right jobs, is better served as Secretary of State. Plus she has to answer to Benghazi. My ideal pick, of course, uh, honestly, I think there are a lot of good choices. Um, I 
think Warren is the best. I, you know, that's, I'm a huge Warren fan, but, you know, the right people for the right jobs. I'm not, I wouldn't be too mad if Kamala won, even though she's, if Kamala got the nomination, even though she's not a, she hasn't proven to be a great fundraiser yet, but she's someone that can kind of bring together both sides of the party. Karen Bass to me is someone I'd be very excited for, to be completely honest. I know she's kind of newer. She's the, she doesn't have a big name, but she is someone taken seriously enough on Capitol Hill that she was almost, that she almost ran for Speaker of the House. So people take her seriously. She's well respected by everybody in the party. You know, although California is safe, I think we've got, I think we've got an embarrassment of riches as far as vice president choices go. Thank you, Nate. And I want to go ahead and end off by asking all of your, you know, thoughts and reflections on the legacy of John Lewis. Um, today, he was eulogized uh, by former President Barack Obama, um, also former Presidents Bush and Clinton, also uh, gave, you know, uh, tribute to uh, the former congressman um, and the work that he did even before he entered into the political arena in fighting for civil rights and fighting for the right to vote. The right to vote was a key, um, you know, hallmark in his his work. Um, and we know with the removal of Section 5 from the Voting Rights Act, the rise of voter ID laws, voter suppression tactics, um, the no, no longer the need for Southern states or states that have a history of discrimination to check in with the Attorney General's office um, has opened the floodgate for um, all of these attacks that we're seeing in Georgia, uh, for instance, in states like my state, North Carolina. Um, what are your thoughts on the life of, of John Lewis and, and, and his legacy? And I want to get each of your thoughts. I want to start out um, with, um, I'm going to start out with Arian, meaning that she had more of a relationship with John Lewis. Um, you've known him, it seems personally, um, you worked with him on Capitol Hill. And so I'm going to, I just find it fitting uh, that I'll let you go ahead and start off um, talking about him. Yeah. Uh, um, hearing about the passing of Congressman John Lewis, I think that was, uh, that hit me the hardest. Um, John Lewis was honestly my hero. Uh, still is my hero, you know, um, even with him passing. I think um, he left a legacy that is, unmatchable. Uh, for me, uh, I guess with my personal story, uh, actually, um, I've always, you know, heard about John Lewis, you know, uh, especially because he's a household name. Um, and I having the opportunity to actually intern for him my senior year of high school, um, he actually was the reason why I went to went to politics you know, seeing about seeing his, you know, legacy or hearing about his legacy, seeing him and seeing, you know, how much he really cared for his people um, truly inspired me. And, knew, and I knew then that that's, you know, politics is something that I wanted to go in and, and you know, I always wanted to help people. And I knew that politics was a, a definitely a way for me to be able to do that. Um, I also, you know, one thing I guess that uh, hit me the most was being able to, I think everyone had a story about Congressman John Lewis. Um, and it was always positive to see that he had such a big impact on the youth and not how much he cared about the youth and wanting to see us do great, wanting us to see, uh, wanting to see us uh, carry on the torch, um, even within his, uh, his letter uh, that was released today. And just, you know, seeing that he wants us to continue um, 
uh, he said, uh, sorry. Uh, when he was, when he said that uh, George Emmett Till was his George Floyd, and um, that I guess that hit me the most because you know what's what what is going on today happened you know in his time, and for him to see that and to say you know I want you to continue the fight you know it doesn't just stop with me it continues uh, that hit me the hardest. Um, so I think in order for people to carry on his legacy, you got to go out and vote. He worked so hard. He uh, dedicated his life, you know, to civil rights for us to have some type of. <sighs> Sorry, I'm getting emotional. Let me uh, move forward. Um, yeah, I, I think it's just time for us to vote. Uh, I think we need to get out and we, we need to educate people on voter suppression. I think we need to um, get, get people registered to vote. Everyone in our family needs to, uh, to be registered. People in our communities need to be registered to vote. It shouldn't just, uh, you know, it, more social media postings to go out. Um, we need to call your senators and tell them to pass uh, the Voting Rights Act. Um, I think also that the, the big name change from uh, changing it to uh, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act would be amazing. Um, and I think everyone just needs to get into some good trouble. Good trouble, necessary Chris, trouble. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Good trouble, Chris. Um, once again, thank thank you, Michael, for having this conversation, and it's been fun to um, discuss politics and and life with all of you. Um, and as I think about the the life and legacy of John Lewis, um, all I can say and feel is, is a sense of gratitude. Um, if you think about it, he was just 20, 23, 24 years old um, when he saw injustice happening um, in his life, in, in, in the South, um, in his worldview, and had the courage to stand in the gap, put his body at risk so that we could have um, just the right to vote, um, to the right to gain what we call freedom in America which is a pursuit that we're going to continue to fight for. I'm going to have to continue to fight for for years to come. And um, if I think about myself at the age of 27 and think about just a few years back when I was 23 or 24, would I have done the same to put my, my body and my life at risk, literally in the South or in other places so that we can um, create a brighter future. And I think that, you know, that gratitude is something I'm going to carry with me going forward. I think also we have to understand that we are, today sowing seeds for tomorrow, um, we have to remain hopeful. And that's what John Lewis did. He believed in this country, he believed in our people, but he also carried hope. And he didn't get too cynical. Um, he was critical of the country, but he wasn't cynical. I think criticism allows for you to see issues and kind of make a decision on what you're gonna do, what role will you play to uh, be a, a problem solver. Cynicism can kind of deter people from moving forward. And so let us continue to, to remain hopeful, um, continue to remain critical of this country, critical of injustice, and uh, do all we can to get in good trouble. That means registering people to vote. That means um, continuing to peacefully protest and staying safe in that way. Um, and also just kind of keeping him in mind and keeping um, you know, our, 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 our children and grandchildren to come in their future in mind, just like he did for us. So we think, we thank John Lewis for his life and we thank him for his legacy. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Chiquez. Yeah, same thing that Chris said, man. Just a just, just a great amount of respect and gratitude 
for his service that he that he uh, gave into this country over the years. I mean, it's just I, I think at the baseline of it, you have the the premise that you have to um, be the change that you want to see. I, I think that's just the, the baseline of it. Um, I think you know they they fought him and many other civil rights leaders. Man, they leaders, excuse me. They fought for us to be where we're at. Um, they fought for us to be like, I said, I had a speech a couple weeks ago. And I was like, listen, we say it all the time, but we are literally our ancestors' wildest dreams. And we have to continue to live up to it. Um, and pioneers like uh, John Lewis, man, it's, it's, it inspires me to keep going forward, man, advocating for, uh, for us to, to keep trying to, you know, change these institutions that he, he was 20. I'm 27 years old. When he was 24 years old, um, you know, he always felt that it can be changed, but he, I don't think he ever um, grasped the level of change that we're trying to trying to get done. And so again, just gratitude for him, uh, having gratitude um, for his his passing, and understanding that you know change is slow, it's very slow, but as uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said, "The art, the, the moral is the moral history. I don't even. I'm gonna mess this quote up. I gotta go with me. <laughs> uh, the, the moral art advances, but advances towards justice. Uh, I think, lo, lo and behold, over time, time and time again, um, I think history is on John Lewis' side. Um, I think I'm, I'm grateful that this country gave him, although the president kind of shunned him." This country gave him uh, a great going away ceremony. And again, blessings to him and his family. And I, I think at the end, it, it shows too that looking at his life and the work that he done, work that he has done, um, it, it shows, uh, tells to the next generation, you can't just stand on the sidelines. You have to actually get out and do something. Um, that's getting out, bringing two people to the polls, as you run for office yourself. Um, that's you registering voters, you advocating for issues that he fought for. You can't no longer sit on the sidelines. Um, I think we have to do something. Um, and just looking at how much he sacrificed, um, how much he sacrificed and put on the line literally his own flesh. Um, I think that, that that shows us that we have to do something. Um, I'm I'm ready to give I'm ready to grab that torch. And I want our generation to be ready to grab that torch. Um, he's he definitely held his hand out for some of the battle. I think our generation needs to get off the sidelines and continue to fight, grab that torch, and carry on the fight. So. Thank you, Chiquez. Amethyst. Um, I definitely was watching um, President Barack Obama uh, give the eulogy today, and I thought in contemplation that just like, what am I doing in the fight for our people? I realized that him at the age, just like all of us have said, at the age of 24, 25, and 23, literally put his body on the line. And am I willing and am I ready to put my body on the line for our people? Like, so it was just a really big reflection time um, for me. And I realized too that the fire that I had in undergrad, the fire that I had in high school for just like the advancement of our people. As soon as I got into law school and started getting really busy, it's like that fire started to dim. And I really understood today that complacency is not an option. 
Like I do not have an option not to get up every day and figure out how my purpose is dedicated to the advancement of African-American people. Like that's just not a, that's just, that's just not an option. And listening to the life of John Lewis and all those who came before him and all those who stood next to him and just seeing the pictures of him with Dr. Martin Luther King, I'm just like, who am I to not do what I'm supposed to do to make sure that we're at a better place for my children to have a future? So um, I dedicate my life to all those who came before me and all the shoulders that I stand on. And I just thank um, today for the reflection time that I had to remember that thank and you, to Amethyst. keep pushing forward. And last but not least, uh, Nate. Well, Mike, thanks again for inviting me on your program. Um, definitely, I'd say the legacy of John Lewis is that of a trailblazer. The legacy of him and other trailblazers like Shirley Chisholm is that uh, multiple Black women can be considered for the highest office in the land or vetted for vice president and nobody bats an eye. You know, we're talking about a job where you're literally a heartbeat away from the president and, we're, and a lot of women we discussed as being contenders are Black women. And nobody is really, and people are looking at them for their qualifications and not just because their skin is darker. It's that uh, young people everywhere are more involved in politics. You know, I'm 22 years old. I don't, uh, you know, if, you know, um, like John Lewis at 23 years old was willing to be absolutely brutalized. I know for me, if I got, uh, injured in that kind of way, you wouldn't see me on the front lines ever again, but he never let that uh, serve as a deterrent. So it's a call to persistency. You know, like Amethyst said, the that fire that I discovered in undergrad kind of faded a little bit as life happens, school happens, but we can't let we can't let it fade because there's so much that's depending on us. Thank you, Nate. And I'm gonna end off with my own thoughts too. You know, John Lewis, the first time he saw his name printed, I believe he was he saw it as the boy preacher. That was the, the headline that featured him because he had given a sermon um, at his um, church. And he was also, I believe, one of the, if I think he was the only young person that spoke in the March on Washington in 1963. And I would challenge those who have been viewing or will watch this later, um, you know, who may think, you know, why waste my time between the lesser of two evils this November? Why vote for somebody that I'm not 100% sold on. John Lewis could have thought that way in 1960 with Kennedy and Nixon. You know, John Lewis could have thought that way in the multitude of elections that he's had the opportunity to live through. But instead, he saw the, the system as it was, flaws and all, and he decided to dedicate his life to it and to not just dedicate his life to it, but to be so willing to even endure physical abuse. Um, blood was spilled at the Ambus Pettus Bridge. Police beat him over the head with a baton to ensure that you have the right to now vote and make your voice heard in this country. And I think, you know, with that in mind, how can you not want to get up and get engaged? You know, as Amethyst mentioned, you know, that, you know, working on behalf of Af African-American people, working for people who have a similar background for you, that's not an option. I would also add that voting is not an option. In my view, at least, you know, if you don't vote, think about what's at stake. You know, think about what you are forfeiting. Think about the power you're giving up, you know. And so my challenge is not to look at the system as a cynic, not to look at things apathetically, but to get engaged. No, you're not going to ever have a candidate that's 100 percent, you know, in alignment with what you want. You know, when Kennedy got to the White House, 
the civil rights leaders started to send him pens because he promised on the campaign trail that he would use his pen to sign in civil rights legislation. And so they sent him pens because they thought he couldn't find a pen so because they thought it took too long. You know, if those folks had the same kind of viewpoint, we may not have the Civil Rights Act of 64 or 65. Uh, we may not have the Voting Rights Act. We may not have the Fair Housing Act of 1968. So I, I, I implore you to take this seriously. I thank each of you for being a part of this panel. This was an amazing, amazing discussion. Thank you, Ariana. Thank you, Nate. Jaquez, McCall, I, I wish you the best on your candidacy uh, in representing the city of Florence, South Carolina. Chris, thank you so much for all that you do in, in, in you know, in the political arena in, in Pennsylvania, the State House of Representatives. Amethyst, you and I still at Howard Law. This is our last year coming up. Thank you so much for being a part of this panel. Um, I want to thank each of you for what you've contributed in the end. I also want to thank uh, Cassandra. She'll see the end of this later, I'm sure. Thank you so much for being a part of this discussion and, and what, you know, the role that you've played um, in the political field as well. You know, let's pay attention as we're entering in this final phase of the election. Um, stakes are too high not to. Uh, with that being said, I just want to thank you each again. Um, and also want to give a shout out. Please follow the Black at uh, the Black Girl Politico on Instagram. Great Instagram account. Very um, informative. Very, you know, just follow the account. It's a great account. And please follow Chiquez T. McCall on Facebook. His candidacy, I think, is an exciting one. Uh, he's actually relying very heavily on social media, which I think is a good thing. So go ahead and follow him. See if, you know, if he's worthy of your vote, I'm sure he is, and uh, make your vote accordingly. With that being said, I thank you all. I wish you all a good night. Um, and I wanna invite those who are watching the two next Thursday at 7 p.m. as we have a fourth edition of the Political Mic. Thank you so much. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Thank you.